You just heard Allegiance from Dimi Briaguet, or Dimi Borger, however you'd like to pronounce it, from the Death Cult Armageddon record. This is the Rogue Metal Podcast. I'm Mark. And I'm Jason. And tonight, today, whenever you're listening to this, we are uh, gathered together listening to uh, a pretty pretty controversial record in some ways. Uh, controversial band, I guess you would say. And one of the reasons we decided to, to look into this is because we're joined with uh, an esteemed guest that has been uh, on several several episodes in the past, but not really in recent years. I believe the last episode that Pestilence. Chris, yeah, Chris was part of was uh, the, the Pestilence show. So, yeah, yeah, so welcome welcome, Chris Dick. Give us, uh, give us your background in metal for people that maybe are new to our podcast here. Uh, okay, well, thank you very much for having me, having me uh, on the Requiem Metal Podcast again, guys. It's, yeah. been, it's been a very long time coming. I know that we try to do this every year and it never really works out due to our schedules or whatever else happens and last uh, time we did it was the final podcast ever recorded at the godfather mansion that's what you said that's yeah. unfortunate i know it is a sad story yeah. family divorces and all that right. stuff that but, but we have the pictures yeah the hot tub picture just came up as a five-year anniversary <laughs> yesterday and that was so so actually i think it was four years ago that you did pestilence Almost half a decade. Yeah, I know. Crazy. Crazy. Time moves by fast. Uh, as far as metal is concerned, uh, I've been involved in heavy metal, uh, heavy metal journalism, um, all things heavy metal, mostly Death Black and Doom uh, with Mark uh, since our high school years. Mark and I had uh, Requiem Magazine, which Whoa, is Whoa, the name's like strange. The names, yeah, strange. It's funny where that comes from. <laughs> Uh, and then uh, I ran a magazine called Eclipse, of which Jason helped start after Requiem folded. Then Mark joined us happily um, for a few issues thereafter in the uh, late four. 90s, early, yeah. early 2000s. Mm-hmm. I worked for Relapse Records. Uh, I started DigitalMetal.com, which was an early kind of Metal Sucks type site or Blabbermouth type site for metal back in the early 2000s with Matt Jacobson from uh, Relapse Records. Uh, I write for Decibel. I've been writing for Decibel since 2006, so it's a good 10 years. I've been writing for Decibel. I used to write for Metal Maniacs. Mm-hmm. Uh, I used to write for some other smaller publications, but that's pretty much the the history, all, all things said. And one of the reasons we decided to bring Chris in is because he's kind of became uh, become a Hall of Fame specialist a bit at, uh, the, yeah. at the magazine now. If you're familiar with Decibel Magazine, they do a Hall of Fame uh, for each Hall of, Hall of Fame record, excuse me, for each issue. And you've done, you've had a pretty good run the last mm-hmm. couple of years. Uh, sure. That seems to be more of your primary focus. I mean, there's some right. reviews here and there, and a couple of interviews and stuff like yep. that. But um, how how did you kind of inherit that mantle of, of getting so involved in all the kind of Hall of Fame stuff? Uh, I think it, it kind of came from wanting to know more about the records that I liked. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Albert, the editor of Decibel, was you know, um, you know, trusted me to kind of represent the magazine uh when talking to artists and labels and publicists about talking to you know people like saxon for example who i just inducted um dima borger who we're talking about i just inducted um you know killing joke who i did a long time ago ministry i mean you name it um so it's kind of like he trusted me to become like this representative in some way about the magazine or for the magazine rather um and in doing so you kind of you have to do this kind of outreach to artists. Mm. And they have no idea what the Hall of Fame is most of the time. Hey, what is it? What does the Hall of Fame mean? What does it do? How am I represented? Do you guys like mail them issues so they can yeah. see how it's kind of like portrayed? Usually by PDF through email. Okay. So that way, you know, usually we send them what I call the Golden Three Hall of Fames, um, which is Black Sabbath, Heaven and Hell, mm-hmm. uh, Metallica, Justice for All, 
uh, and uh, Killing Joke, Killing Joke. Those are kind of the ones we send people to let them see the dynamic uh, between. Is that because they're more? Those three are more. I don't say mainstream bands, but main. Everyone ask. knows who Metallica is. Yeah. Um, everyone knows who Black Sabbath is. Um, Killing Joke kind of has more of an artist, kind of a like a high culture concept yeah, yeah. behind them. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's kind of why like doing something like that is different from doing a Metallica. So when you approach an artist and you say, "Hey, we've talked to Diamond Head, we've talked to Angel Witch, we've talked to," um, you know, they're not going. Well, someone like Saxons doesn't know who Carcass is. Yeah. So, but they, they see that you've done, say, um, Metallica, they know exactly who that is. Um, <laughs> yeah, that when you say you've done Black yes. Sabbath, yeah. they know exactly who that is. When you've done Motorhead, they know exactly who that is because they've toured with them. Yeah. Right? They have, used to have relationships with these people, so immediately becomes apparent that they're like it. it a lot of time, a lot of the older artists, artists in general, are especially when they have ex-members, are very distrusting of the process because they're they're more concerned about the slinging shit mentality. Like yeah. it's going to become this kind of us against them thing, which most people don't want to dig up again because of the ex-members. And ex-members things like could that, be about yeah. royalties. It could be about mostly it's about money. It could be about how they were treated, how they felt they were disrespected, whatever it could be. Now, there's a lot of dynamics there and a lot of distrust. So a lot of it's convincing these people that. This story, these stories that we're going to talk through with them, are not a uh, tabloid representation of the record or of the times. It's really we want their stories. It's just yeah, oral history. Record. Yeah, it's yeah. just an oral history yeah. kind of thing. It's an oral history of the record, and we really want them to kind of do the dialogue. Like I don't do a lot of talking. You know, I yeah. try to. If they're not very talkative, I try to get them to go through it and you know remember things. But most of the time, if you ask these guys questions, they just start. You know, going off forever yeah. because they have all these memories, they have all these stories to tell. Some are really great, some are boring, um, yeah. some are pretty much run of the mill. Mm-hmm. We just write songs because that's what we do, kind of thing. <laughs> um, but it's really you have to track down all the original members. Um, well, that's some one of the the I guess idea just behind it is you can't if there's any dead members you can't, you can't yeah, do yeah. the whole thing. Yeah, it's right. got to be all living members. Yeah, it has to be all living members. So you can't use and that's why Injustice for All is. The like Beyond is the only thing that they can really do. That's right. You know, because of Cliff, and obviously yeah. you can't do anything do like, with Dio anymore. No Dio records, no Rainbow yeah. records, uh, yeah. no other Black Sabbath with Dio records. Yeah. Um, you know, there's a lot of records like that, like Death, for example. Yeah, no Chuck. Um, Chuck, yeah. you know, unfortunately has, you know, passed. you guys kind of did like, uh, I feel like Decibel did an issue kind of devoted to oral history. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, we did oral history. It was kind of like a dedication, almost like a pseudo hall of fame. It was like everybody that had kind of been involved as a member of sure. the death, almost and things everyone. Like that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and that was kind of the idea behind it was just to kind of get everyone involved and in kind of instead of doing a hall of fame for like Scream Buddy Gore or Leprosy human or, or something, or yeah. human, uh, we kind of got all the members that were around at the time that were com- com- you know collaborating or appearing with Chuck on record, uh, even producer Scott Burns yep. and even Chuck's family. Uh, to appear on that one, so it was kind of like a Hall of Fame, but it wasn't really branded as such. Yeah. Now, so. which uh, which ones have you had get kind of stunted because you can't uh, get every band member? I know you've just uh, give maybe a couple that like kind of come to mind for sure. People are always like maybe waiting for an, it, you know how come this album hasn't come out? Well, uh, <laughs> perfect example is Judas Priest. Uh, any Judas Priest record. Uh, with Dave Holland is kind of considered uh, no go territory just because of the allegations against Dave. Pedophilia stuff. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, um, so you know, from an editorial perspective, Albert's fairly strong on that point. Okay. Uh, he's not going to allow you know British Steel, Screaming for Vengeance, you know, really critical, pivotal, influential heavy metal records not appear in the Hall of Fame for that reason. Even though like we've done, say, Burzum. Uh, Do you know what I'm saying? I mean, I guess I, I don't want to. I don't want to. Pedophilia. I don't want to dis. Well, but, but no, the it's, murder it's all, versus pedophilia. You know, I mean, yeah. convicted it's murder. Also, it's ultimately what you know where Albert feels strongest yeah. about. You know, and I'm not debating it. I I agree with it. I'm yeah. not a fan of pedophilia on any level, yeah. but you know, it's I, I get that. 
so yeah, so it really depends on you know. Um, so Judas Priest is a perfect example. A lot of people look at that and say, well, you know, why is Iron Maiden doesn't have any more to you know Hall of Fame records in the Hall of Fame? I mean, there's could be ten of them. Sure, uh, they're just a, they're just really hard to deal with. Yeah, um, getting them all together. Sometimes they won't agree to things. Sometimes they will, um, but they're just very hard to deal with. Mm-hmm. Um, Slipknot is another one uh, that uh, I was pretty much on the way to do, almost completed. Uh, and then uh, I interviewed Paul Gray before he passed, so yeah. we have that in the can. Uh, but there are a couple of members who won't interview or won't talk because they've never talked to the media before, so therefore they won't talk now. Uh, they don't want to talk because Paul had passed at that point. Uh, Joey Jordison was one of was one of them um, who really had a really catastrophic interview. Um, not stuff I can talk about here, obviously on the podcast, but he wasn't he wasn't fit for discussion. Yeah. Uh, I know we've talked off mic yeah, before right. years ago. So about that, this that stuff. was one that's been stunted. And that's, you know, however people feel about Slipknot, that's one record that kind of helped the underground become. Oh, it's pivotal. It's a gateway yeah. record, you know. It was a gateway for a million kids. Yeah. I mean, that's a lot of records. For sold. the students I teach, Slipknot means a lot to them, you know. Right. It doesn't mean much to us, but I got to respect that, you know. But I mean, they were referencing the underground when mm-hmm. the underground really wasn't anything. It was really just, you know, underground movement. So I think in a way, Slipknot was kind of this. You know this catalyst for what metals become now, which is a little bit more acceptable. Which, in the eyes of some, is bad, and in the eyes of some, it's good. Sure. Record labels think it's good, bands think it's good. People who think that every band is their own, like you know, I own and you know, I first listened to Enslaved when I was a teenager. What therefore Enslaved is mine. Mm-hmm. That yeah. kind of mentality um, was bad for them because then they don't want to share that sentiment. Yep. Mm-hmm. So, um, but so you know, they were very a very pivotal band for that reason. They were really kind of one of the first bands to be that heavy and that commercial. Um, and commercial being again a cut a both a double edged sword. Yeah. But the Hall of Fame process is usually a pretty enjoyable process. Um, it's you know, a lot of times the un- the the point that's really terrible is the transcription. Yeah. Uh, where you you know it's Are you paying somebody to do your transcription? No. You're still there. <laughs> no, I'm doing it all myself. Uh, because <laughs> a lot of these guys have are from different countries. Oh yeah, sure. Uh, they have very thick accents. Um, they're referencing song titles in their native language. Uh, there's a lot of context in these discussions. So I think if I were to farm it out to India or something like that, I'd mm-hmm. get I'd get text back that I'd have to spend just as much Be time correcting yeah, than yeah. I would just sitting there and editing. Well, and, I remember transcribing interviews back in Eclipse right. days and it's stuff with least, like Isan, you know, yeah. the accent yeah. from Isan trying to like figure out what word did he just say there, you know, yeah. rewinding, playing, right. rewinding. I was yeah. doing that's probably been almost 20 years since I've done one of those, but <laughs> it's, it's terrible. It was on the micro cassette recorder. Oh, yeah. Like, <laughs> I still have some micro cassettes I found with interviews, yeah. some that were untranscribed for basically Eclipse number eight that right. never, we, we should, never did. You should give me those because I've still got the player. We could always put those up as bonus. That would be kind of cool. Yeah. So anyway, so I don't know. I don't know. If we want to get off the topic of Demu, but uh, well, I want to get to Demu now right. with the Hall of Fame and, and kind of. I, I guess the the debate I was kind of curious about is why this record, Death Call Armageddon, which was put out in two thousand four, mm-hmm. um, versus say, like to me, the first Demu record that had like a big impact was like Enthroned Darkness Triumphant. Yep. But I mean, I guess I know the Progenies, which we're going to talk about that song. Uh, I'm sure a, sure a bit was you know their biggest song and, and things mm-hmm. like that it's their big selling album but why why this record as opposed to like Enthrone was that like a year decision or a band decision or editorial it was, it was or? Uh, okay. it was no decision it was basically um, I was all set up to do to interview all, all the, the members that appeared on it even the Top Hat guy oh uh, on Enthrone okay. yeah <laughs> what is to- I forget Top Hat guy's name I believe his Norwegian name is Stian I think okay um, gotcha so, uh, <laughs> for those of you that don't know, pull out your Enthrone <laughs> album and, and look through the booklet. Yeah. You'll you'll know. He was, he was always affectionately known as the Top Hat guy <laughs> in the media, and, and you know, friends of ours. You know, hey, who's the guy in the Top Hat? Yeah. 
That's the first thing you notice about that. So you guys anyway, originally tried to do so. We tried to do this. We tried to do that record. So I had um, I had uh, Ian, who's the drummer, uh, you know, hel- helping us out, get everyone organized. Uh, and then Nagash, I was also supposed to interview Nagash, um, and I was supposed to actually. We tried to work it out. Never got it. Never happened. Uh, he was doing Troll at the time. And then uh, I went to Norway to see Demu actually perform with the uh, Cork Orchestra, which is this huge production that the NRK put on for uh, broadcast in Norway. Uh, and they invited a bunch of journalists from around the world to come in and do coverage on that on that on that concert. Uh, so I was supposed to interview him at that. You know, while I was in Norway, he's in Oslo. I'm in Oslo. It makes it easy just go to a coffee shop and yeah. you know bang it out. Well, he went radio silent for like two months before that, and I haven't heard from him since. So even the publicist at the time who was working all the Napalm records, the Napalm record stuff uh, for Troll, tried to reach out to him. He never just never responded. So he went totally dark. Hmm. And at that point, you know, you have to kind of say, this guy's not going to work with us. And if he's not going to work with us, therefore no Hall of Fame. Got it. So everyone else was all, was all signed on. You know, uh, everyone else was in agreement that, yep, this looks this would be a good first Hall of Fame record for Dima. Uh, and then Nagash kind of went uh, hmm. AWOL. And I've never heard from him. Was since. he the guitar player? He was the bass player. Bass player, okay. Yeah. Before Simon came in. Yep, right? exactly. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Yep. Yeah. So then we get to this record. So tell us kind of how. Well, I mean, you, how you, you, have, you have records in between, right? Sure. So you, you, have, get you have Spiritual, spiritual Black. Black Dimensions and you yeah. have Puritanical, both good records in and, of, in and of themselves. But I think this record is where Demu kind of became less. Uh, Chaotic and more focused. There was actually songs here that were memorable. Progenies, of course, is actually the, is the is the perfect example of that um, it actually has like an impact. And I think as songwriters, and even they say this in the Hall of Fame, this is their best record. Mm. And you know, most bands are not going to say a record that's from 2005 and it's 2016. That's yeah. not their. They're going to think the newest stuff is the best. Sure, stuff. sure. Yeah. Um, so they think this is their best record in terms of the band chemistry, the songwriting. Um, the way it was recorded, uh, the time spent recording it, the time spent mastering it, uh, the level of effort they all put into it, uh, their memories behind this record are all positive because shortly thereafter, obviously Nick Barker left, and then they had Simon. issues with Simon, and yeah. then issues with uh, with Oyvind, uh, the keyboard player. Um, so this was kind of the record where they were, where the band in all aspects were kind of in harmony um, or disharmony, if you want to. Yeah, yeah. master of disharmony. <laughs> there you go. There's your enthrone. Yeah, there's my yeah. throne darkness reference. <laughs> Um, so that's why I think this record is is probably the reason uh, we wanted to do this one. Plus, everyone agreed to it. Uh, you know, we had everyone that that could be interviewed, wanted to be interviewed. Um, although it took us two years to put it together. Wow! So I have interviews. My first interviews with this guy with with uh, with Silenos or or, or uh, Sven go back two years. Nick Barker goes back two years. Simon goes back two years. Oyvin goes back two years. Um, so a lot of these interviews go back in history. Uh, so now they just got completed. Literally like two months ago, with uh, Stian being the last Shagrath, Shagrath being the, uh, yeah. the final guy to uh, complete his interview. Wow! So, what do you think? Like, I mean, let's talk about the. I think the symphony because I sure. think that's one of the the selling the points of this record. Yeah. You know, what I mean, before this, who had done anything like this? Had Entombed done their one no. record yet, uh, where they did the stuff with Stockholm? Unreal State, or yeah, Unreal. No, State. No, what was that? Was that oh four oh five? That I'm not sure, but remember the difference between this one and any other record before it. Yeah, is that this record was written with the orchestra in mind. Okay. So it wasn't where you had a had a record and they decided, okay, let's put an orchestra on top of it. So it's not S and M for Metallica. For a perfect yeah. example, yeah, it's not the Kiss thing that atrocious DVD. 
that kiss kiss symphony whatever it's called yeah uh, uh, you lost me there that marks the kiss guy maybe i don't know there's a there's a dvd <laughs> that came out that was that was kiss with the symphony okay that's the same yeah. type of thing was well, that yeah. like more like apocalypta like type thing where the people were doing kiss no, no. songs kiss with, oh, okay. Okay. Along yeah. with, yeah, gene simmons and those guys with with hey orchestra. if it makes money gene was behind it I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> so either way what, what the difference between that is you had songs that were kind of made yeah. And the orchestra put on top or orchestra adapting to it. This album was written expressly with the orchestra in mind. So Dinu has a full pre-production of this entire album uh, that before they went into this, into Fredman to record it, they have a full, it's a full album already ready. And they're, they're going to release it one day as the demos. Hmm. So it was all fully integrated into the music. So there wasn't like this kind of like Lego concept where you're putting stuff on top and kind of sticking it together because it could. This is all fully integrated right from the get-go. Like, they weren't just writing metal riffs and then trying to stack stuff on top of it. This is metal riff plus orchestra together. Sure. So that's the main difference, I think, when you talk about an orchestra with metal versus an orchestra and, you know, and metal. I guess it's kind of the preposition, I guess, changes the yeah. um, the the meaning behind. So was who, who wrote the orchestrated music? Was this off given to somebody? Like, here's the keyboard framework and give it to a... So Oyvind, the keyboard it. player, or uh, Mustas, mm-hmm. wrote most of it with you know with Shagrath and with uh, you know Shagrath wrote a lot of the material as well. Okay. So I think they kind of had a very good uh, relationship in terms of melding the metal and the symphonic. And then they have a third party. His name is Gauta Storas, who is was he like a conductor for the? He's, a, he's an arranger. Yeah, okay. exactly. Okay. Um, so he's he did, he's a Norwegian um, who I met when I was in that at that uh, show in in Oslo, the orchestral show. Um, and he's the one who arranges all their stuff. So <clears throat> the music, it's not being arranged or written by anyone else. It's being arranged and written by Demo, the members of Demo. So anything you hear on Death Cult Armageddon is all their own music. It's not like they were saying, you know, hey, you know more about orchestra stuff. You go write the stuff and we'll, and we'll accept it or not when you, when you come back to us. Yeah. They're, they, they, everything's fully fully realized and they give it over to, over to Gauta, Gauta and he's the one who puts it to sheet music. Okay. He's okay. the one who says, "Okay, this transition from a musical step or a musical theory makes sense, or this one doesn't." So he's kind of giving them guidance on on. He's kind of like the professor, so to speak. The so you can say professor. this is for like the the woodwinds. This is for the brass. All that kind of. They know. They. I mean, as far as I can tell, they are. They know what should be like a woodwind piece. What should be a brass piece. What should be a, you know like a percussion piece or, or flipped over you know mm-hmm. strings. Um, I think he's the one who's really just giving them kind of like the the final seal approval. Like you know, this is how it should look in musical notation. This is how it should flow from a uh, from a from a theory standpoint. Mm-hmm. You do these certain things in this order in order to be correct, theoretically yeah. correct. Uh, but he is the band who's actually writing all the, the music of themselves. Well, I think hmm. it's fascinating too because Demu has, I mean, from the moment Throne kind of came out. You know, was one of the purveyors of, of symphonic black metal, which was mm-hmm. kind of a late '90s sort of phenomenon and yeah, stuff. Mid to late '90s, yeah. And then when they kind of would play shows and stuff, they would come out to the uh, music orchestral music from Independence Day soundtrack that was yeah. like one of their things. So <laughs> they've always had like a cinematic quality to some of the things that they were doing. Like, did they intend this or want this when they put it together to sort of feel almost with that kind of bombacity that you hear in, like, a Star Wars, John Mm -hmm. Williams, or um, these sort of major kind of big sci-fi, grandiose, Holst-esque orchestral scores? Is that what they were kind of going for? or? Okay, so I mean, I didn't know if they, these guys were like classical geeks. You know what I mean? Like if they sat I around. Say they're classical geeks. I think they're they're probably film music geeks. Film. Okay. You know, I mean, if you, you know, if you talk to Oyvind or Shagrath, 
you know, they're heavy into soundtracks and by certain, obviously, composers. Well, and when you and I lived together, we were way... And I don't know if it was because the symphonic black metal helped... Like it was sort of a thing that was happening in the late '90s when, when right. Chris and I were roommates, but we were way into like soundtrack music a lot, yeah. you know. Um, it's kind of come around again too. Yeah, it's kind of it's kind of coming. So they were they were a film score people basically. Yeah, yeah. They were I mean, into. they were you know they were into the same stuff we were probably into. You know, the Conan soundtrack. Yeah. Uh, Star Wars, of course. Uh, Vangelis. Yeah, uh, you know, was, how Vangelis, do you pronounce Vangelis? Vangelis yeah. yeah, Vangelis. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so they're they're into those types of things. The big you know the big dark kind of. Um, Wagnerian concepts. Sure. Yeah. Holst is a good example. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, Grieg. You mm-hmm. know, um, and now you kind of see stuff like with the, the <laughs> zombie and with the the John Carpenter like lost themes kind of stuff where it's got yeah. like a almost like an '80s film score Goblin esque kind of Carpenter thing. Carpenter like the anti. Um, he called all the the big scores of John Williams Mickey Mouse music. Because it's because it's so big. Well, that and like every single like if you hear something, it's you see it on screen. Like if somebody bumps into something, you hear it in orchestration. Oh, okay. Like you're Mickey Mousing every little thing. Huh. And his was the the ultimate in just being cheap, efficient. It was just sort of there, mood. layered in the back. It was yeah. mood music. He, okay, and, you know he, he he scored most of his you know first like four or five movies in a couple of days. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> well, and I think the thing you hear with like even just Demu before they work with the the Prague Symphony Orchestra is that this is a band that has this, you know, this album has kind of like a circusy, I mean I wrote down satanic circus, you mm-hmm. know, like that's kind of their yeah. kaleidoscopic like yeah. they want to hit you with a lot of different sort of feels yeah, and a lot a of different things. Too. They call it the T- Tivolian Terror. Okay. Which in, I believe it's a amusement park in Denmark. So that they all went to as kids. Um, and I could be wrong, but I think it's in Denmark. Uh, and it was kind of like a perversion of that memory as going to this theme park as kids. Like, imagine a theme park run by Lucifer or something. Gotcha. You know, so that's where this kind of, you know, you hear that you heard that in the early Arcturus stuff where you had this... Nightwork from Diabolical exactly, Masquerade. Yeah, this kind of like carnival kind of theme song. Come, it all comes, I think, from that, from that term and that relationship to that amusement park. That's cool. I think. I'm pretty sure that's yeah. where it came from. Um. So let's talk about before we kind of end this first talk set because the the song we're going to come out of uh, is Progenies, right? right? So yeah. why is this? Why does this song work? Do you think? I mean, because every time I hear this, it just sounds like I don't want to say the, it sounds like one of the ultimate like kind of black metal singles. You know, if you were going to like sit down and play somebody like like a song to try and hook somebody onto black metal, you play them something like this, and they're like, yeah. "Damn!" Like it, right. it just it floods you with things, right? What, why did that work for them? Why did it become this huge single? It's their, probably their most famous video. Like all these different elements are kind of working. There's several movies that used it for in their trailer. I mean, yeah. it immediately within like four notes, I think the song kind of like you know exactly what to expect. That that big swelling, yeah. dun 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 dun. Yeah. It's not like Terminator soundtrack. The same kind of you know, sure, propulsive. And the closest I had heard is something like yeah, yeah, Imperial yeah. March. The closest I had heard to this, and and I don't know, I and we, we'll maybe get into this in the next talk set and get a little bit deeper into it, but. I hear things like that I heard Isan trying to do on like Prometheus, mm-hmm. the last kind of full Emperor record, yeah. that were very cinematic in scope. Right. But this is like the next level because, again, you have this added layer that there's a real yeah. orchestra underneath really adding weight to it and, yeah. and stuff. It's not yeah. just a guy doing it on keyboards or something. Right. You know? I mean, I think that's, that's the main difference. I mean, the main difference between you know what Ishan was doing uh, on, on in Emperor uh, and in the solo stuff compared to what Demu did with, you know, 
a 52-piece orchestra is like night and day. Yeah. I mean, one is very sort of DIY, you know, he's very adept at doing what he, Ishan was very adept at doing what he was doing, but he just didn't have the resources. Mm-hmm. You know, obviously, you know, Nuclear Blast believed in Demu enough to give him enough resources to hire a 52-piece orchestra. Even though it was the B squad in the Prague Philharmonic, they were still far more advanced in terms of... I don't of think most black produce. metal fans are going to yeah, notice the B-Squad. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Better well, than the high school yeah. band, that, you know. Yeah. yeah, I mean, you know, even Ishan didn't have, you know, I think on, um, on uh, was it uh, Spiritual Black Dimensions or is it Puritanical? Puritanical, there's a 14-piece orchestra, the Gothenburg Orchestra. Again, that's even more than Ishan had. Yeah. So you kind of, you know, from, from a sonic standpoint, Ishan's not going to have that that sort of sweeping orchestral, that real quality, or, which is what Demo had on Puritanical, and then, of course, much more so on uh, Death Cult. Yeah. And as far as Death Cult's concerned, I mean, I think that we're all hitting the, the the topic insofar as the reason why it sounds familiar is because they're kind of, they're, they're doing familiar themes, right? The Imperial March, the first few notes, you know exactly what you're listening to. Sure. Uh, and I think that's why they're going for in that. And as far as the metal aspect of it's concerned, it's just a really well-written song. Yeah. Uh, for black metal, you know, mm-hmm. or, or just heavy metal or extreme metal, whatever. It's very percussive. Yeah. And Nick Barker's drums on that are, are absolutely insane. And he admitted that that's probably one of his best drum per, uh, sessions he's ever had because he was practicing day in, day out. He was the one guy that Simon um, was saying he was always practicing. Gotcha. Because you know, at the time, Simon was living in the rehearsal space, um, at Dima's rehearsal space. So when you know Nick would come over from England to uh, to play... You know, to rehearse for a tour or whatever, or to, to you know get ready for the for the album, he was always playing. So Simon, that's what Simon kind of observed. And when we a, talk about Simon, you know, we're talking about uh, for percussionists. You know, yeah, Simon is ICS Vortex uh, yeah. or Simon Hess. How do you say his last name? Uh, Hestius. I'll, I'll murder like it. I don't know. Um, but he's of course somebody that Chris and I and Mark were acquainted from originally through uh, Arcturus. Mm-hmm. You know, on the the La Masquerade record, yeah. and then he got involved with Borknagar, right. and then from there moved on to Demu to play bass for them, and then kind of sang on a few parts. And he has a one of his two major kind of vocal performances is on Progenies. Yeah. You know, yeah, and I think it's a defining moment for that song too. Oh. It kind of it takes a song away from its sort of foundation, right? Mm-hmm. You have this orchestral metal foundation, and when that vocal part from Simon comes on, it's almost like a complete separation from that foundations where it kind of makes it a little bit well it's almost what classical symphonies do yeah. where they spotlight like a solo instrument yep, for a exactly. second mm-hmm. and it like kind of just like spotlight boom. yeah but Here i think it's go. an elevated it's mm-hmm. an elevated point in the song or crescendo if you want to call it that well and the video really amplifies that as right. well it's so over the top with mm-hmm. wind blowing and, everywhere. The, and the lightning coming down yeah. you know it's almost like you know the he-man thing yeah. where, you know he raises his sword and the lightning comes down and he turns and you know yeah uh so that's sort of like the He-Man moment or the Prince Adam moment going into He-Man uh, of the song. You know, as funny as that sounds, but it really, you know that part really is a kind of a crescendo. And then you see the rest of the song after, after that point kind of goes down and then repeats the same motifs mm-hmm. afterwards. So sure, uh, it's a good and it's an important part of the song. And I think it's also a part that people connect to because it's a clean, it's a vocal that they can, it's a vocal melody or harmony that they can identify with, which is versus the screams or the growls or the yeah. Whatever Shagrath and uh, Abbott are doing. Uh, well, I know one of the things that prepared me for Death Cult to like kind of almost look forward to it is that somewhere after Puritanical, Brian Allen, who used to write for Eclipse Magazine with us and was a roommate of mine, um, he got a hold of uh, Burn in Hell. 
Twisted Sister cover mm-hmm. somewhere. I don't, and we would just sit. And you remember listening to that all it was the time? Actually, it was on a B side. Well, it's it's on this. It's on the bonus track of this. But, but I know it was like it was recorded. A B, it was a B side. It was a Tokyo. It was the Japanese uh, bonus track for Pure Tennis. Is that where it came from? Yeah. Okay, and that was in the day where like you didn't find that stuff floating around the internet as easily mm-hmm. as you would today. Mm-hmm. And so like it was kind of like this diamond in the rough. Where like, and it was all almost Simon the whole thing. Like yeah. Simon really yeah. owned that song, and we had loved Simon from his Borknagar stuff and all that. But so I was like really like geek to hear more kind of Simon type yeah. type things sure. you know, going I think that's one thing that you'll hear um, if you read the Decibel Hall of Fame they talk about that they really wish Simon had, had been able to contribute more I know he's only on there twice and to me it's like that could have really made it almost and more that's probably where they were going I think before things kind of got, got a bit weird between the members that's you know, too the bad. next album kind of got a bit weird uh, from a production standpoint so gotcha is this the last Simon record or the next one next one next one okay so what we're going to hear in this next set of music and we kind of come back and talk a little bit more about some of the other songs but we've got uh, Progenies of the Great Apocalypse the aforementioned song we've been chatting about uh, Lepers Among Us uh all right, Chris, help me with this. We we said Vredesbeard, Vredesbeard, which means yeah. burden of wrath, <laughs> and then for the world to dictate our death. So enjoy. Mm.
Satan was there. Satan was real to him. And Satan called himself God. Yes, yeah.
Yeah.